Hey there, real quick before we begin today's episode of Growing Pulse Crops, I have a small but very important request of you. Please, if you could, just I want you to hit pause for just a few minutes to take our audience survey. The link for it is in the very top of the show notes to this episode. So no matter what podcast player or website you're listening to this from, it should be right there at the top of the screen. You see, the show is made possible by the generous support of our sponsors, and they like to know if their money is going to good use to productive, valuable content. And also producer Dr. Audrey Kalisle and I like to know how we're doing and if we can make this more interesting or more valuable for you as well. So please take just a few minutes now and click that link for the audience survey in the show notes to give us your feedback. It'll only take a few minutes and I promise it is very much appreciated. This is Growing Pulse Crops and I'm your host, Tim Hammerich. Today, what does it take for a pulse growing region to grow from scratch? We explore what's happening in Nebraska with Dr. Bob Harvison and farmer Steve Tucker. We can grow mung beans. I mean, there's different aspects of these different things that we can do. What does the market need? And so I just had a conversation with a company that's looking for lupins. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard of lupins before. And so there are more various different kinds of pulse crops that who knows what else is out there, what people are looking for to utilize in food products. I think that it's just ever-changing quickly and uh, people are just looking for different things all the time. Now, whether you're from Nebraska or elsewhere, this is a great episode today about what's possible for the future of pulse crops. We talk about peas and chickpeas, but we also get into other niche opportunities like mung beans, cow peas, and more. You'll get a sense of the emerging pulse industry in Nebraska, but also what it takes for the development of pulse crops everywhere, from genetics to agronomy to disease management to markets. Today's episode consists of two different interviews, the first of which with Southwest Nebraska farmer Steve Tucker and the second with University of Nebraska plant pathologist Dr. Bob Harvison. We'll start with Steve Tucker. Steve farms near Venango, Nebraska, which again is in the southwest part of the state. He says it can be a tough place to farm, and any given year can bring anything from drought to wind to extreme heat to hail to any other number of weather-related issues. Steve has built his operation on the principle of diversity. He has diversified both his crops and his business model. Models. He now grows up to 14 different crops and strives to grow crops that he says he can sell by the pound instead of by the bushel. In other words, he looks for crops that consumers want and other ways he can value add his production. This process has led him into pulse crops like peas and chickpeas and even mung beans. We'll start our conversation with him talking about what led him to this diversity in production. Well, it's interesting that, you know, when we started into diversification, we were basically a wheat summer fallow farm like everybody was here 20, 30 years ago. And that really right now today is not sustainable. So we started implementing some things into the mix, millets, and then dry land corn kind of became real popular. Then we started looking at that, you know, and basically we were just growing grasses. And, you know, how do we break that cycle? How do we get into something different? How do we add something to this mix? And yellow peas came into the equation. We put those in about where well, we did it in the 90s. Problem was, was down here in Nebraska, when you grow something that is brand new, then you have to go develop a market for it. And there really wasn't a market for it at that point. So we were growing these things. And uh, I remember first year we grew them back in the 90s the test weight was like 74 pounds and these things were just phenomenal. And I haven't been able to repeat that since we've done that, but they were just 
just off the charts. But if we had a market, I mean, it would have been exceptional. But kind of a few years lagged in there, and then all of a sudden, peace started showing back up. And it's funny because when you when you have something and you get people on board, and there's more peace show up, then all of a sudden the markets start to show up. And so, just over the course of time, we've developed these things and put these things together, and kind of works out that the the market for some of these things is not that far away. And, and talk about that market today. Uh, as the market kind of showed up, are there are there new facilities in the area, or what what do the markets look like for yellow peas in uh, Western Nebraska? Well, from what I understand, and, and from just the way things have been going here, what we do is when we produce the uh, the peas in Nebraska, we're a lot closer to the pet food market, and so that kind of gives us a little bit of a uh, a little bit of advantage to getting it shipping wise to the pet food companies, saves them on freight, and we we take them off a little bit earlier than our counterparts to the north. So that's kind of part of what gives us some of an advantage. Now, the other part of that is we have to battle the weather a little bit harder. Heat comes in a little earlier, so we may not get the yield. So they're probably still going to have to get some out of the north, too. It's just we've had some challenges here the last few years that haven't made it quite as lucrative putting those into the rotation. You mean uh, like agronomic challenges or more like economics and market challenges or both? Actually, it's kind of, kind of, it, it, you know, that, that kind of goes from year to year. But yes, it is both. Sometimes you can throw peas in if you have a high yield, the low prices. And it is a whole different crop. You got to handle it a little bit differently. Things are different. And sometimes guys in this neighborhood have never done it before, trying something new. Uh, it does present some challenges to it. There's not a lot of places that you have to deliver it. So you do have to truck it quite a ways. So, there, I mean, there are some challenges to it. There's some agronomic challenges to it. I remember a couple of years ago, we had nice looking peas that came out of the ground. Things took off. We were looking great. And right when they started to flower, we just went into a, a hot, dry spell, 50 mile an hour winds every day. I remember a guy telling me, he said, yeah, I was driving down the road and my blooms were blowing off the plants right across the road right in front of me. I mean, it just makes you sick. So it's just things like that that's been a challenge to it. Right. And obviously, I know why you you did peas again after that first year, because it sounds like they turned out great. Um, where have you found over the years that they fit best in, in your rotation and kind of um, what has kept them sticking around, you know, year after year? Is it just the diversification piece or is there more to it specifically with the peas? Uh, it, it, a lot of it is the diversification piece. It adds another crop in there that uh, really helps grow something versus uh, just having a you know, a summer of summer fallow where nothing grows there before you go back to wheat or, a, you know, a, a grain crop like that. So you can grow something and you can take those off in plenty of time to go right back into a, you know, a winter wheat crop. And so that helps if you want to provide some income off of that instead of spending all your money trying to keep the ground clean for going back to wheat. And, it, you know, they do have, they do put nitrogen back into it. It's a great rotation does improve the soil. A lot of things that uh, it's very advantageous. And what else other than wheat and peas uh, are, are in your rotation normally? Yeah, I, uh, I do some uh, white milo for a food company. Uh, I'm trying to get a lot more requests for that, a lot more interest in just white milo. I think this gluten-free thing is coming into it. I know the uh, plant-based food association, they're looking at things to do with peas. 
I do chickpeas and then chickpeas with flax. Do several kinds of millet, oats, barley, uh, rye, triticale, wheat, of course, dry land corn. It's not GMO. Uh, you know, I try to find those niche markets that uh, kind of keep things interesting. That, that, you know, I try not to find things that are just regular commodities, but things that uh, people want that we can put into cover crop mixes. We do some of that to, I mean, it just it, your options are open when you have a lot of different things. That's cool. And and I mean, has, has, has that always been something that appealed to you? Just like growing a bunch of different things. And I imagine some farmers will say, well, wow, yeah, you're selling by the pound instead of by the bushel. That sounds great. But others might say, boy, that sounds like a lot of work, a lot of extra work to figure all that stuff out. Yeah, it is. There's never a dull moment around here. Every day is something, something different. Uh, but at the same time, it's probably just as profitable, if not more profitable to do that just to have these options of different things. Um, I just wanted to grow what, what consumers wanted instead of what the elevator paid for. I just I get tired of taking every people dictate to me what the price was. I wanted to be the price setter. And so that kind of changes the, the options that you have and, and where you can go with it. And so you mentioned cover crops. Is, so is that what AgriForce seed is? Is it cover crop seed? Uh, cover crop seed is done by Tucker Farms right here. And then uh, AgriForce seed, we started that with my partner, Jeff Olson, about uh, 10 years ago. And we just realized that uh, when we got into peas initially back in 2012, we would have to buy all of our seed from the Dakotas and ship it down here. And we spent two to 3000 bucks a truckload just to get pea seed down here so we could get peas in the ground. Then we realized, hey, why are we shipping it in here all the time? Why don't we just grow the seed and then have seed for the producers around here? So we're not all paying all the shipping to get stuff down here. So we started growing pea seed and then we just formed this company, AgriForce Seed, that uh, would help provide pulse crop seed. And we do uh, peas and chickpea seed for uh, producers around here to grow and then you know provide for the markets that are available. And are those genetics sort of, you know, uniquely suited to, to the local context there? That's a great question. I wish they were, but uh, we, we, we pull stuff out of the Dakotas and Canada and try and force it to make it work down here. And so there's a lot of testing. I know the University of Nebraska, I know uh, Kansas State has done some studies trying to get peas down here and find out what works and what doesn't. You know, it's a lot of trial and error. And it's, you know, over the course of 10 years, we've come a long ways, but uh, I know there's a lot of big push here just in the last year or two to try and get winter peas established here and see if that's more of a fit where they come out earlier in the spring, you know, they get out ahead of the heat and they come off earlier so that you can avoid the heat that they, you know, heat in the June and July timeframe just murders us in peas. And if we can get them out earlier and ahead of it, then that probably provides a whole lot more opportunity for growing a good quality pea crop down here. Right. What about on, on, on chickpeas? When did those enter the picture for you and how, how have those experiences gone? Yeah, chickpeas, that's been an interesting proposition. Uh, so there was a uh, bean company that said, hey, you want to try some chickpeas? And of course, you know, everybody comes to me because I'm a glutton for punishment. You know, everybody knows that I will try anything if they just throw it up here in front of me. And so I planted 160 acres of chickpeas and we got the seed in June, which I thought was well, probably late, but I know I planted it in June. 
they just took off, looked fabulous uh, in November. I, I remember right before Thanksgiving, they were out there in the field, and I, I thought, man, these things are never going to – I mean, they just don't die. They're still green. They still had blooms on them in November. And we desiccated them. They went to – it got down to like 19 degrees. They froze. They were still green. So I finally decided, well, they're going to have to be cut because there was a snowstorm predicted to come in. So we went out there and we cut them. And I cleaned them. I stuck them in the bin. I called the guy. I said, here, your chickpeas are all tucked away in the bin. He goes, oh, well, I don't want them. So now I'm sitting here with a big old bin full of chickpeas. And I got a call one day from a broker. And he said, hey, can you package chickpeas? And I said, well, what do you want? And he wanted them in 50-pound bags and shove them all on a container. And so we bought a bagger. We built the bagging machine put this bagger on it and we we uh, shoved a whole container full of chickpeas shipped it to Sri Lanka and I made more money off that little patch than I did about anything else and so that's what got me onto the, the chickpea route and just doing these different things that's why I say if you grow it it's amazing what comes out of the woodwork when people find that hey you've got something that you know somebody wants and so that's kind of where we started I haven't had much success finding more opportunities like that. But uh, we, of course, you know, we've had some pretty low yields the last few years and this year it looks good. If we get these things in and, you know, more opportunities will present themselves. Well, I want to share more about what Steve is doing here with chickpeas, especially the intercropping he's been doing with chickpea and flax. He's had some really positive experiences with that. But before we go there, it's important to talk about one of the biggest barriers to producing more chickpeas in Nebraska which is Askakaita blight. When plant pathologist Dr. Bob Harvison came to the University of Nebraska in 1999, chickpeas were really on the rise in the state. But he said sometime in the early 2000s, Askakaita really started to affect a lot of fields, and there weren't really fungicides labeled for the disease at that time. Now, of course, since then, there are fungicide options. Those have improved as well as the genetics, thanks in part to Nebraska plant breeder Dr. Carlos Aria, who he'll mention. But many of those same growers who experienced the devastating losses from Askakaita in the early 2000s are very, very hesitant to plant chickpeas or even other pulse crops again. I just know it's a, it's a huge reason in Nebraska that people don't want to try again. But Carlos and I, if we can show, you know, like in field days and then with publications and that sort of thing, if we can, can show a definitive problem solved, then that's, um, that's what we're trying to do. Because it, I'm really a, a fan of this of this crop just simply because it fits well into our systems. You know, the machinery for dry beans, which most people have, have done, would be the same with this crop too. So you wouldn't have to get new new machinery or anything, anything like that. You, you would already be in, in place. Plus, it's just something that I think there's a market for. But we always have that issue of how do I get it from western Nebraska to Whichever place uh, I can, I can pick it up. We're not as big as it does up in the Northwest. You know, the Washington and Idaho and Oregon produce a whole lot more. But I don't know. It's it's just uh, it's it's somewhat frustrating because I would really like to really really like to see this crop grow. But uh, we'll just we'll just wait and see. 
Now, despite these frustrations, Bob remains optimistic for the future of chickpeas and other pulses in the state. And there's one unique pulse crop that he revealed he is particularly fond of, which is cow peas, or what some might call black-eyed peas. I'm from Texas originally, and uh, we eat a lot of black eyes in Texas. In fact, it, it, there's a thing that if you don't eat them on New Year's Day, you're going to have a bad year. So it's, it's, just, uh, it's just one I, that I'm, I'm, I've been around my whole life, and, and I like to eat them. And, and it's just they're, they're fun to play with. But it's really no difference with, uh, than dry beans. You know, the same, same type of uh, techniques and things in, 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 their, uh, in terms of the, the growth and the planting and, and all of that stuff. Because they're, they're very upright and very strong, actually. The, the stems are really, really tough. When, when it comes to uh, harvest, we can use essentially the same types of uh, things that we would the dry beans. Yeah. And so is cowpea relatively new then to the area? Yes. Yes. It's, it's I mean, it's just been in, in little spots. It hasn't been completely shown everywhere. And in fact, I've, I've talked to growers that, that got a similar situation than, that, that we saw in Askakaida, but it was with the bacterial wilt. That they said that that killed me so bad, I don't want to, I don't want to do it again, or I don't want to plant in that field again, or something like that. And that the first few years that uh, that they were growing it, that was the case. I think this was like two seventeen, two eighteen in that that time period, and bacterial wilt was everywhere. And so I wanted to know. I'd made some collections, and I wanted to see whether they were um, the same as on dry beans, because if you put that into your rotation then you're still having a host there that you, you couldn't cure the, the problem with rotation, I guess is the point. Because it's the same pathogen that gets in several different crops that you might want to put into rotation. But there's some that, uh, that like it and some that don't because if they had issues in the past, they don't want to, they don't want to do it again. So again, I'm, I'm putting this in the same kind of a boat that I am with the Askakaida with chickpeas. I'm trying to do research that would show the benefits and then how to manage the, the uh, issues, the problems, if we've been able to diagnose them correctly. So that's, that's the other thing. I, I have a, a strong diagnostic background. So whenever something like this pops up, I try to determine what the problem is, how well it's distributed, you know, those sorts of things before you can start uh, developing control measures. You got to know what you've got in order to really make the right choice for that. Anyway, it's, uh, I, I have uh, done some surveys and that sort of thing. Bacterial wilt and, and common blight are two uh, of the, the things that I see the, the most commonly in terms of diseases. And, and that's very similar to, um, to dry beans as well. So that, that would be the issue. I mean, it still has, there's root rots that, it, that can get it, but I still say that, uh, that the bacterial problems are the, the number one thing to, to deal with. And when you say bacterial problems, can you, can you expand on those for, cow, for uh, cowpea specifically? Uh, well, it, it's, they're the same diseases, we think, that, that get on dry beans. So there's really four of them. There's a common blight, there's halo blight, there's brown spot, and then uh, bacterial wilt. Those are the four that, that we see on uh, any of the pulse crops, from what, except for chickpeas. I, I don't think I've ever seen these, any of these bacterial things on chickpeas. They must be somewhat um, 
susceptible, but it's not. Uh, Ascochyte is still in chickpeas the number one issue. I think that's uh, remarkable that it would do that. All these other pulse crops, it's it's more of a uh, bacterial problem than with chickpeas. Now, for more information on Ascochyta and chickpeas specifically, you can refer back to some of our previous episodes we've done on that topic. Some that come to mind right now are coordinated research efforts to fight pulse pathogens with Dr. Jenny Davidson, which is in season two. Also in season two, Canadian pulses and foliar disease management. And then back in season one, disease management in pulses with Dr. Michael Vunch. And I will link to all three of those episodes covering this important disease in the show notes to today's episode. I think that's a really important part of the story when we think about the evolution of pulse crops, not only in Nebraska, but everywhere. You know, everything needs to happen in lockstep. The genetics, the agronomic tools, the research, the markets, the growing systems, and several other factors need to develop simultaneously to make the crop profitable to grow for farmers and consistently available and marketable for buyers. And that brings us back to Steve Tucker, who has found for his growing system, he can be successful with interplanting chickpeas with flax. He tells us more about that system and then goes on to talk about some of the other challenges and opportunities to pulses in Nebraska. I love it. I, the first time I tried it, it was absolutely fabulous. No disease issues whatsoever. The weeds, I don't know if there was some synergism between them that uh, kept the weeds down. I have it this year and I have a few more weed problems, but we have a whole lot more rain this year too. But uh, yeah, the first year we did it, it was just fabulous. And I remember cutting that and chickpeas were rolling in the bin and I looked back there and I went, well, boy, they're not getting any of the flax in there. But once we cleaned it and separated it, I mean, it just, you get both of the crops and I've got a cleaner that we can separate the two. And then it's just a dream to have the two of them together. And, and what did you use for like a, you know, a breakdown of seeding rates for that? And, and how did the economics work out with how much, you know, chickpea and how much flax you got? Uh, well, that's the thing. You got to go find a market for the flax. We we seeded the chickpeas one direction. And because uh, I had a, a friend of mine up in South Dakota, he told me, yeah, they've done it in the past. But he said, do not put them in the same row. And so we went in and drilled the chickpeas deep at like, you know, two to two and a half inches deep one direction. And then we came back with the flax and seeded at a, at a light rate and went the opposite direction. And so that just covered that field. And yeah, yeah, you're, you're drilling the field twice, but it's not like I have a whole lot of acres of chickpeas and flax planted. It's not like I plant the whole farm to it. So that kind of helps, you know, a little bit of time, but it's not a huge uh, investment into it. You know, you mentioned that the weed suppression was pretty good on it the first year, at least. And then you maybe had a wetter year. It was a little worse. But was that the big reason for the intercrop or what kind of uh, appealed to you about trying that in the first place? I know that uh, in Canada, they've done a lot of that and they're just finding some synergistic effect from having flax and chickpeas together. And I know that a lot of people have put peas and oats together. It works. I think we can do a lot more things like that. The part of it, I know I'm, I do have a cleaner in the seed business, so we do have the ability to separate it, whereas not every producer is going to have a cleaner on the place. But uh, I do have the luxury of being able to separate the two. And so I think, you know, Mother Nature, when you look out across a field, there's there's many species out there. And then modern agriculture today goes out, and we just plant monocrops everywhere. Well, why do you think a weed grows out in the field? That's just what Mother Nature is supposed to do. What makes a weed a weed? We do. Mother Nature 
is just trying to cover herself back up. You know, that's what nature wants to do is grow a plant. And so when we do monocrops and have these wide gaps and everything out there, Mother Nature's just trying to fill in the holes. That's what it's supposed to do. And so if we can put in two crops or two species into it or three or four, uh, there's starting to be more and more of this push for doing these more of these things like this that, uh, you know, we just find that we're not trying to battle nature so much as we are just trying to work in harmony with the way the Mother Nature wants things to be. And so when we do that, then uh, it works a lot better. Such a good point. I like it. Um, is there anything either with intercropping or or just with pulses in general that is on your mind to try next? You know, something that you're thinking about that you haven't got into yet, but uh, you're, you're mulling around. Yeah, there's a lot. Uh, one of the things that has just recently showed up, but, you know, I've done mung beans. I went to a food company. They said, hey, we don't have any, we don't, we're sourcing our mung beans from China and from India. And I said, well, why don't you get them from the United States? And they said, we didn't know anybody in the United States grew them. So I went back and I looked and, you know, mung beans like it in a hot, dry environment. Well, guess where I live in a hot, dry environment. So I thought, well, let me try mung beans. So I put in a little field of mung beans and they got held on twice, but they still made quite a bit. It's amazing. And so, uh, yeah, we can grow mung beans. I mean, there's different aspects of these different things that we can do. What does the market need? And so I just got a, had a conversation with a company that's looking for lupins. You know, there's a lot of things out there that are exotic that, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard of lupins before. A couple of years ago, that's when I first heard them. And so there are more various different kinds of pulse crops that what else is out there? What can we grow? Maybe it'll be easier to grow than what peas and chickpeas. Maybe they fit in an environment. Who knows? I mean, who knows what else is out there, what people are looking for to utilize in food products. I think that people are experimenting and looking and just all these things. It's just ever changing quickly. And uh, people are just looking for different things all the time. How do you find all these niches or do they find you? Because they know that you're, you know, willing to, to try something out of the ordinary. Yeah, well, I am an anomaly to producers. I like going to food shows. There's a, a huge uh, Expo West out in California in the springtime. And I just walk up and down those aisles and you, there's just thousands upon thousands of food companies. You know, and they're looking to farmers as to what farmers can grow and what, what can I provide them. You know, and I can't provide everything. There's, there's a lot of companies that use rice. Well, guess what? I'm not growing rice in southwest Nebraska, but, you know, I can't, I can't provide all those people what they want. But there's a huge demand for like oats. You know, oats are being expanded into different things, the oat milks and, you know, all the various things that are out there that they do with oats. And even, you know, just like we're talking Pulse flowers, pulse anything. There's all kinds of aspects of what pulses can go into. And so I just walked through these things, uh, ran into a company that was looking for navy beans and it just didn't work out. But I mean, you just, there's opportunities into those things. And so that's where I find these different crops. And the biggest hurdle that we find is how do we process them? Because the problem is, is I can grow them and they can use them, but we got to have somebody in the middle that can, uh, clean them, process them into the flour, do those things. That, that's where we're hurting. You know, we need to develop these small regional processors, not just huge ones that there's only one or two of them that do processing in the country. We need smaller, more regional-based uh, processors. That's, that's what I'm passionate about is getting those things 
processed for smaller companies. Yet another important point for the future of Pulse Crops, which is access to buyers and processors for more market access for farmers like Steve. I really enjoyed talking to both Steve Tucker and to Dr. Bob Harvison for today's episode. Thank you to both of them for being on the show. I think their excitement for Pulse Crops and the potential there in Nebraska is infectious. Well, that's going to do it for season four of the Growing Pulse Crops podcast. If you haven't already, please, please, please complete our listener survey. Whether this is your first episode or your 50th, your input is extremely valuable to us. So once again, the link for that is in the show notes for today's episode. And thank you so much to those of you who have a few minutes to spare to give us your feedback. The Growing Pulse Crops podcast series is overseen by the Pulse Crops Working group with funding from the Northern Pulse Growers Association, the North Central IPM Center, USDA NIFA, and the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council. We have released these episodes two times per month throughout the season, and we want to make sure the information stays relevant to you both this season and the next one. So if you're finding it useful, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and feel free to tweet us by using the hashtag Growing Pulse Crops. We'll be back with another season of Growing Pulse Crops next year.